Hello, and welcome to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast, a different way of covering and discovering comic books. My wish is to help you find that next fantastic read or rediscover an old favorite. I cover comic books from the golden age to now and even Kickstarter campaigns, so you never know what I might cover, but you will know where to find fantastic comic to read at the end of each show. It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2023, and this is episode 80 of the podcast, which took much longer than I wanted to get out. Now, generally, I'm a private person trying to keep much of my personal life out of the podcast. With that being said, I needed to step back and regroup myself a little bit, so I'm slowly getting back into the swing of things, hence the delay in the podcast. Let me be 100% clear, the podcast is not going anywhere. As you know, it recently celebrated the first anniversary in the 75th episode, something that I'm proud of in my life. I know many people like what they hear and give me encouraging feedback on the podcast, and that's fantastic. I think the podcast continued to grow. I just need to get my act together and put out more episodes and do what I set out to do. Now, this particular episode is way, way overdue. I owe Alan Stewart a huge apology because we taped this episode a while back and it covers October 1972. See, Alan runs this fantastic blog called Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Book, where he talks about the comic books that came out at the time when he bought them 50 years ago. I strongly suggest you check out the blog, which you can find a link to in the show notes. I was initially impressed with the amount of research and insightful observations Alan puts into his posts. So last spring... I approached him about coming onto the podcast. At first, he was a bit hesitant, but he's come to enjoy coming onto the podcast to talk about comics. He is one of my favorite guests. I hope to have him on the show again to cover the rest of 1972. Now, I've been surprised by, which, by how much has happened in 1972. Partly, I think it has to do with their, this being the early ages of the Bronze Age of comics which I think was actually more creative than the Silver Age. I believe this has to do with the loosening of the comic codes, which allowed more genres to reappear. And publishers were experimenting with new formats, which made for some fantastic reads. Now, one more thing. There's also a link tree in the show notes on the Fantastic Comic Fan. Please follow the podcast on the social media there. Subscribe to the podcast. I really am into the podcast. I want it to continue to grow. And have I said... I want to introduce the fans to a different way of covering comic books. Now, on to today's show. I am welcoming back, once again, Alan Stewart, who does a blog called Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Book. And he basically tackles, on a regular basis, comic books that come out 50 years ago. And earlier this year, I approached Alan about why don't you talk about 50 years ago, which is 1972 on my podcast. And Alan's like, I don't know about this. And you know, <laughs> maybe we'll do this and maybe that. So, and we've done several segments on 1972. Now the first podcast was supposed to be the whole year. <laughs> then we broke it up into quarters. And the last time around, we broke up the summer between certain comic books and the JLA, J JSA right. crossover. Right. 
And this time around, Alan, we were supposed to be doing the last months of 1972, mm-hmm. which is October, November, December. And I'm like, Alan, let's just do October because there's so <laughs> many wonky, crazy things going on in October. I'm like, yeah. Alan, I'm like, Alan, you don't got much coverage here. How do you feel about this? And I don't want to hijack and take over the podcast because you're supposed to be the guest. And Alan's like, we'll go with it. We'll make it, yes. you know, we'll make it work. But before we talk about uh, October 1972, let's go back to your pod. I'm sorry, your blog out. How long has this blog been going on and why did you initially start it? Um, it's been going on since 2015, and it began when I realized that in 2015, I would have been reading, or I had been reading comic books for 50 years. Um, I was aware of at least the first comic book I remembered buying for myself off the stands of an issue of Superman. Um, and it was like, that was going to be like in August, 2015, um, because I'd bought it in August 1965. And uh, I was just thinking, well, it would be sort of fun, maybe just for at least a little while to do a blog about some of these like early comic book reading experiences that I had just to um, a sort of a nostalgic wallow. And, uh, and if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? You know, it's 50th anniversary of, of the beginning. This is when I should begin it now or not do it at all. So I began it. And it, um, it actually, it's sort of... Um, I wouldn't say it took over my life, but, <laughs> but it's, uh, but it ended up being, um, yeah, I guess more, um, more engrossing and rewarding an experience of, of doing it, doing the research for it, uh, as well as rereading the old comics and thinking about what I thought about them then and what I think about them now, but also the, uh, the history uh, of the creators, you know, kind of how certain comics fit in with their careers and the histories of the characters. And so um, at this point, I've been doing it um, for s- seven years and um, usually post about once uh, once a week, sometimes twice a week, if it's a, if it's a big month. Um, August, for example, of, uh, of 1972 turned out to be a, a big month. I think that's partly because, you know, the companies used to put a lot of stuff out in the summer when the kids were out of school. Yes. You know, and so I, it tends to be that I I have find find that I have a lot more stuff I want to write about in the summer months than I do maybe in um, October <laughs> uh, or March or something else when there's a, a when there's just not quite as much out there. But at any rate, that's a long way about to say um, how I started it and why I'm doing it. You know, one of the things that attracted me to your blog is that you do do great research, scholarly research. You're not very objective. You're more subjective and I'm sorry, you're more objective and not subjective. You actually give the, you know, good detailed notes and background information. And that's why I thought, you know, I want him on the podcast and I keep having you come back to talk about 72 because I like the scholarly approach. And I know there's a lot of fans out there going, I wasn't even born in 1972. (laughs) Why should I read a silver age? Or why should I read a golden age? Or something Mm -hmm. that came out in the bronze age? And as I've told you many times and on the podcast, every comic era should be read in context of the times. And a lot of the stuff that came out in golden age, silver age, your creators today were influenced by these creators back then going back to the silver age and there's also a lot of creators that and we'll talk about them in, in october 72 that don't garner the attention that they should there's mm-hmm. so many creators out there that a lot of them get lost 
you know, in the woodwork and they really should get more attention and more spotlight. And one of my missions for the podcast is to get that fanboy feeling that we have of when we buy a comic book and mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's so great. And to pass that same feeling on to new fans or fans who haven't read a comic book in forever. Right. And give us, hey, let's go look this, let's go check this out and see how cool this really is. And that's been my whole goal. So we are again, we are going to be talking about October 1972. And instead of jumping into the big two, I <laughs> want to go to Charlton Comic Books for just okay. a brief moment and then Dell Comics. You know what? Okay. Let's do Dell Comics. Dell Comics is nobody knows about Dell Comics, but Dell Comics was one of the big major publishers back in the golden age. Mm -hmm. And in 1972, they were still publishing comic books and they were only putting out three issues in 1972. And unfortunately, they did go out of business in 1973. Right. So they were kind of on a death watch. They were on life support, you know, ICU. Mm -hmm. And Dell did so many licensed comic books back in the 50s and the 40s. And Dell Comics was also, I believe, the only comic book company at the time, which most fans don't realize, but there was used to be this big comic code that started in the 1950s. Right. And most comic books had to have their comic books go through these sensors, have this code on their comic book, right. distributed from the newsstand, and Dell refused to join the code, refused sure. to have anything to do with the code, mm -hmm. because they said, our comics are kid-friendly, they're wholesome stuff, we will never put the code on there, we have our own standards of what a good comic, good comic book should right. be. And they were doing Disney, they were doing the Disney yes. characters, and um, basically it's like, yeah, if parents were going to trust any comic book publisher without that seal it was going to be Dell. Dell Comics and Comic Book Plus which is a great repository mm -hmm. for silver and golden age comics have hundreds of Dell Comics and fans should go out and check out you know Comic Book Plus look up some Dell comic books and just see what they put out because there's some really cool wonky stuff that Dell did over the mm -hmm. years and again the other one I want to talk about which is Charlton Comics. Right. To me Charlton Comics has always was always the little engine that could. <laughs> they started off in the golden age. They're one of the few publishers that went on to the bronze age and didn't stop publishing till the right. mid 1980s. And they consistently put out comic books every single month. And they weren't always the highest quality comic books. Even sure. their, their publishing standards were not always that great. Uh, Del, I'm sorry, Charlton Comics had their own printing press and basically Connecticut mm -hmm. and they publish their own comic books and to keep these printing presses going 24 right. seven, basically right. they pumped out a lot of comic books. Right. And in 1972, October, they put out 30 comic books. Wow. Is, yeah. And that's just <laughs> out of 30. And that's basically just as many comic books as DC put out that month and Marvel comics put out that month. And they again did sure. a lot of licensed comic books and I've, don't have them popped up right here. I could do that real quick. Um, but a lot of creators either got their start at Charlton mm -hmm. Comic Books or ended up ended up at Charlton Comics. Some of the books right. that they put out this month was David Cassidy. <laughs> <laughs> you know about David Cassidy, and I know about David Cassidy. A lot of fans, right, right. you know, Beetle Bailey, Blondie. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, uh, let's see, what's the other one I just saw? Topcat, which is a Hanna-Barbera partridge family. They did a lot of licensed comic books. They did a lot of licensed. They were also, I, I assume they were still doing a lot of their, um, their, their horror, you know, like yes. proof horror stuff at this. At they this were doing well. Haunted came out. Ghostly Tales came out. Right. Ghostly Haunts came out. Sure. That, that was a big, right. That was always a big genre for them, or at least it was for a, a good hunk of, of the company's history. Yep. And, Many uh, Ghosts yeah. of Dr. Graves was the big right. one that was published through the 60s and I believe right into the 80s. Yeah. They did a, a, yes. Go on. I was going to say, if you, anybody out there who's like a Steve Ditko fan, I mean, there's just, he, um, he did tons of work for Charlton. Uh, they yes. didn't pay any Grenier as well. Um, of course, it's Marvel or DC. But, but they let him they, do what he wants. They let him and do, let him, they let him, let him alone. What he Here, wanted, yes. Put, do what and, you, so. and it's kind of funny because Steve Ditko could have got top dollar from anywhere, but he trade he he wanted the trade-off is just let me do what I want, write, draw, whatever. And mm -hmm. Charlton allowed him to do that. And a lot of creators got to start in sure. Charlton. I believe John Byrne, some of his early work was in mm -hmm. Charlton, Dick right. Giordano. Got mm -hmm. his their start in uh, Charlton Comics. He was there. He was editor of the line for a while yes, in the sixties. And so Charlton Comics. There's again. There's a ton of Charlton Comics over at Comic Book Plus, and they don't get the attention that they deserve anymore. And they really shouldn't mm -hmm. because they were a major publisher, even if a lot of their comic books weren't high class, high caliber <laughs> quality comics. They, like I said, they were the little engine that could. Sure. Um, since I have a lot more to talk about than you do, Alan, <laughs> I'm going to continue to ramble on about some of my notes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, and, and we'll 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 get to you eventually. I don't know when yeah, we'll get to, yeah. get to you eventually. I'm, but again, um, October 1972 had again a lot of wonky, crazy stuff going on. One of them that I noticed was Batman 242. <laughs> And this was a trope, not just for Bat, not just for Robin, but Batman. They had a lot of covers where Robin dies. See, Robin, you know, Robin dies, or Batman dies. Um, right. Besides this issue, they had, oh, oh, where is it? I can't, oh, yeah, 232 of Batman, 237 had death covers, Detective Comics 374, 381, and 480. I'm sorry here, 4. L8 all had Death of Robin covers, which is kind of interesting because at this time of Batman, the dynamic duel were no longer the dynamic right, duel. Right. You know, to me, the Bronze Age, it's in this, I don't look at the Bronze Age as a set year, as a vest. And for me, mm. the Bronze Age started for Batman when Dick Grayson graduated from college. Sure. Uh, Batman boarded up Wayne Manor and went to mm -hmm. the penthouse where he stayed for the next 10 years. To me, right. that was the start of the Bronze Age of Batman. That's as, that's as good a, a marking point as any for um, for, for Batman and probably is, is the best, best starting point. point. Yeah, yeah. But this issue of Batman uh, 246 actually had a gruesome title cover of Robin hanging from the rafters almost. Mm -hmm. And you can see his, his, I'm like, wow, this is a really intense cover, right. even for the times. And during this, this great era of 1972, a couple of years before the comic codes loosened right. a lot of the regulations. So this comic book cover, Robin being hung, 
was able to, I don't know how, but get past the <laughs> the censors somehow, because uh, I, I was like, wow, I can't believe this got, um, you know, wow, I can't believe they, mm -hmm. they let this this go. Right. <laughs> uh, um, and, and you don't, of course, I don't think you see, any, you don't see like his neck or anything. No, no, no. You, know, you, you don't see his you little, see pointy his... little toes, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, how did you all, you know, get this past right. the sensors? Wait a second. Yeah, you know. can see like his cape behind the logo, but yeah, it's you, like, but, you but, see but his, mostly you see his legs and his feet. Yeah, you see his little legs and you're like, yeah, he got green wrong booties. here. And I'm like, I'm amazed. And this, unfortunately, is not one of the issues that DC has added to their archive. Ah. Which uh, frustrates the heck out of you. We're not going to talk sure. too much about it. They have real issues with DC's um, unlimited service because last year they were doing a really good job of adding some of these Batman comics. They really filled up the holes, but then they stopped. So this one is not part of the archive. Um, mm. Neither is 238, 239, 242, 246. There's just these gaps. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then after like, 250 there's huge gaps of batman where there's no reason to be it's just right great because, because they, great dc universe is supposed to be a service that just that basically gives you access to their library so why not just go ahead and and i it, guess it, it really colored them yeah guess. and i don't blame the moderator but they give lip service of why comics aren't added added or why they add this every month i'm like this has been lip service and it really <laughs> frustrates me because there's yeah. key stuff that should be part of it or even worse, it's digitized already in some format. So why don't you just put that on the service? It's there. Put it right. It, it's funny to think about Batman and Robin, though, just kind of getting back to that and to the dynamic that you mentioned, because it's like it was a big deal to, you know, to take dick grayson and sent him off to college and yes lit up the dynamic duo and that was like presented as a big deal and i and i believe that originally robin was not appearing in the batman comic for a while he was no. appearing in a solo series in as a detective backup. In, yeah, as a backup it was a backup and it was originally in detective um alternating with batgirl and then at some point they moved the robin back up back into batman put his name back on the logo for a while although it's it's gone by now because it's like i don't know i don't know if they got if they decided that oh oh it's hurting sales that we don't have robin you know so we're not going to like backtrack and make him move back home but we are going to have him in every issue that we possibly can either as a sort of like guest starring with batman in the main story or in his backup and Batman during this this time of the early Bronze Age was a much different Batman because the adventures tended to be done in one yes. and really didn't feature the rogues gallery that we know right. now. Right. It was more fake focusing on Batman the detective, Batman the man, not and not so much as Batman the supernatural creature either. Right. It's just they're a very different type of story mm -hmm. um, back then. Going on to, I mean, I could talk about DC all day, but <laughs> but I'm not going to. But Marvel, I noticed when I was going through Marvel, because I spent way too much time on, as you know, on Mike's Amazing World, because they had that really cool newsstand feature where you can go to a month and a year, publisher, mm -hmm. and sort out what comes by you know, that month. Or right. get, and I get lost on there lots of times, obviously, for this issue. Or this time around, I did the same thing for October. But I was going up to Marvel, 
And during this time of Marvel, Marvel was experimenting with magazines and they mm -hmm. kind of like were dipping their toes in the magazine. Then they would pull out, then they would go back in, then they would pull out. And Martin Goodman, who had the publisher for years and years and years, really wasn't keen on Marvel doing magazines. But what I noticed about this particular month is they had this comic, I'm sorry, this magazine called Marvel Monster Madness. Right. Which is like their rendition of famous monsters, the film land. Mm -hmm. And there was only three issues. And this one, I believe, had Frankenstein monster on it. And I'm like, oh, this sounds like so much fun. I wish Marvel would put out an omnibus for a trade or at least in some kind of a digital format just so people could, you know, re-experience this particular three-issue event, so to speak. Uh the, oh, there's a couple other things like I was talking about. You know what? We're going to pause for a second. Alan, you had one notable talking point for October. I'm kind of <laughs> disappointed. I'm going to admit, I'm kind of disappointed in you because usually your blog for the months are filled up with all kinds of good stuff. Okay. And this time around, you only wanted to talk about the DC Marvel crossover. It's unofficially, but it's actually the very first DC Marvel crossover, which a lot of people don't know about. So, right. Alan, I'm heading the podcast back over to you graciously because you are the guest, and we'll ramble more. <laughs> on, we'll ramble more about my notes in a few minutes, but let's talk about this first unofficial sure. DC sure. Marvel crossover. Right, and whether you know whether you count it as the first or not, I guess. I mean, it depends, of course, on how you you define crossover, but. Um, but basically what uh, what happened was that three comic book writers who were friends, um, Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, and Lynn Wein, and also um, Lynn Wein's wife at the time, Glennis, who was a colorist uh, at Marvel, um, took a trip to Rutland, Vermont for the annual Halloween parade. And a lot of fans today maybe aren't all that familiar with the Rutland Halloween parade, but it was a... Uh, it was a fairly large event in, at least in the comic book world, uh, and uh, a guy named Tom Fagan, who was a comics fan, had somehow managed to convince the um, the uh, the city fathers, uh, whatever, at uh, at Rutland to allow him to structure their Halloween parade around comic book superheroes. Um, I think starting with Batman, which I guess maybe at least kind of lent itself more to a Halloween kind of uh, kind of approach. But anyway, that had become a, a thing that people traveled from New York, um, comic book professionals traveled from New York to, to Rutland um, just to sort of to enjoy the parade and to enjoy a big party that Fagan had at his house. And beginning uh, with Avengers 83, which was um, 1970, uh, that was a Roy Thomas, um, uh, John Bushima story that was sort of like the first Rutland comic book story. Um, Roy and his wife, or then wife uh, Jeannie, appeared as you know minor characters in the story. Um, and the Avengers came to town, and uh, there you know supervillains, etc. Um, and so that just basically it was kind of a lark. And then the next year, it's like, well, Roy Thomas decided I'll do it again this time with the Defenders in a Marvel feature. At the same time, uh, Denny O'Neill, who was also a uh, sometime attendee of the Rutland goings on, decided to do a story uh, in Batman. And so you have uh, Night of the Reaper in uh, Batman 237, 
um, it's a, by um, O'Neill and the artist by Neil Adams and, and Dick Giordano. Uh, and it's probably artistically the best of any of the Rutland stories. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's actually uh, a more serious story that you might imagine for something that's, that's inspired by uh, the fun times that some comic book professionals had at a, at a party and at a parade um, ends up being about um, the Holocaust and Nazi hunters and other things. And so, but at any rate, that was October 1971. October 1972, what happens is that Steve Englehart, who was writing the Beast series and Amazing Adventures, and Jerry Conway, who's writing Thor, as well as several other things for Marvel, um, and then Lynn Wein, who has just begun writing Justice League of America, decide we're going to put ourselves into these into stories in these three issues, the issues that will be coming out in October of these series that we're writing, and we are going to interconnect them, and we're not going to tell our bosses that we're doing it. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of funny if you think about it back then, I mean, or that they were actually able to pull it off without yes. getting into trouble or, you know, anything right. like that. Or maybe they got a slap on the wrist later. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's like, you know, I, by this time, of course, Roy Thomas is editor in chief at Marvel Comics, and I don't think he would have cared. No. But, um, but it is fascinating to... Uh, to read them and to read all three of them together. Um, for obvious reasons, the, uh, the, the two Marvel issues sort of sync up better, but there actually is a, there's a, a thing at the end of the Thor issue where Stephen Gilhart's car is stolen and it's not explained in the Thor issue as to like, you know, who stole Stephen Gilhart's car. But if you read, if you read Justice League of America 103, you know that it was the Justice League villain Felix Faust who stole yeah. Steve Englehart's car. <laughs> and you also find out that later it's recovered when the police pull Felix Faust over because the muffler's bad. Um, and that's, again, that's something you have to, you wouldn't know unless you read Justice League. So, but anyway, it's it's Amazing Adventures 16, uh, Justice League of America 103 and Thor 207 for anybody who wants to look those up. Uh, they're, they're, they're fun. The other interesting thing about the Justice League part of this, which is uh, 103, this mm -hmm. is also when the Phantom Stranger Jen yes, joins yes. the Justice League. Exactly, often. exactly. And though he doesn't appear very often, Englehart later on in the 70s right. does use him quite a bit for his sure. run of stuff. In yeah. fact, he had uh, Phantom Stranger and a story where coincidentally the Justice League actually dies. Right, home, right, yeah. right. And they actually... It's not a hoax. They actually do die. Yes. <laughs> and the Phantom Stranger helps bring them back. And it's kind of funny because, you know, the Justice League dying this year in 75. I'm like, wait a minute. Been there. Done that. Yeah, already. been there. Done that. Yes. <laughs> so um, one of the, the uh, I found it interesting. Let's see, where am I at? Another interesting thing that I found out is that I was going through October and I noticed that there were two issues, and I don't know, have any idea why. Mm -hmm. And now it's not a now it's like not a big deal because comic books will be published, you know, bi-weekly a lot of times or sure. weekly. But back then, it's like this is an oddity because there was two issues of Hulk, two issues of Iron Man, mm -hmm. and two issues of Kid Cult Outlaw. And I looked at September, yeah. and they had an issue in September. I thought, well, maybe because of the wonkiness, maybe the November issue came out the tail end of October, but no. They also had 
Hulk, Iron Man, and Kid Colt again in uh, November. I'm like, well, this is kind of wonky. It was kind of weird. But as you pointed out, and I didn't know, the second issue of Iron Man 55 for that month mm-hmm. had the first appearance of Drax the Destroyer and Thanos. Right. So people who want to actually like look at that. So when October comes around, I'll have to make a mention of, hey, this is when Drax the Destroyer came out. <laughs> sure. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I generally only cover comic books that are digitized and can be read in a digital format. Right. And you only cover it in your blog stuff that you read and bought at the time right and, and once again we're kind of blurring the lines by combining sure. these, these things sure. because this is like this is cool history like the jla thor amazing adventures crossover mm-hmm. that's cool history that people should be aware about and, and talk about right and know about and what i also um noticed was that you know kid cult had two issues come out and by this time kid cult was a reprint issue mm-hmm. uh, they didn't do new issues um and i want to mention jack keller mm-hmm. nobody knows who jack keller is jack keller had reprints of kid cult at this time but back in the silver age he drew kid cult for like 12 years at least every every issue had him drawing kid cult and right. we did a podcast back, I think, in June, which covered the 1962, June 1962 omnibus, which featured every comic book that came out at the same month of Amazing Fantasy. And here I'm pointing it out again that, yes, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Jack Kirby, and Stanley were important. But Jack Keller was one of the creators that gave Marvel as a bread and butter for a long time. Right. Kept, you him know. In, kept him in business, yeah. Yes, you know, and Westerns were a popular genre. And even in 1972, Marvel put out a third, which right. were 11 titles. A third of their output were Western. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I know is that Molly the Model <laughs> yes. celebrated its 200 issue. And again, Molly the Model wow. and Stan Goldberg mm-hmm. were part of Marvel's bread and butter during the lean times during that the 50s Molly the model was another character that came out regularly in fact it goes back to 1945 and unfortunately Marvel does not do a good job of digitizing archiving making their westerns Molly the model they don't do a very good job of archiving these comic books and I think that they should and a lot of people go well and this is DC's excuse on their app well, it takes time to digitize and clean up and archive these mm. comics. But over on the Archie side of things, right. Archie has been, and I know this, Archie has been archiving uh-huh. Archie's girls, Betty and Veronica, uh-huh. from one through like 324. So this is like wow. 1950. They're mm-hmm. on 324 right now. And it only goes up to 345. So I really don't want to hear that excuse. Oh, it takes time to clean <laughs> up because Archie is doing a comic book. I love Archie. I respect Archie, but mm-hmm. they're archiving a comic book that who the heck cares about? You know, <laughs> I mean, think Archie, about well, Archie fans do, Archie but yeah, I, do, I, I hear I, what you're saying, and I appreciate it. But this is a comic book that last came out in 1985, from like 50 mm. to mm. 1985, and they're taking the yeah. time to archiving on this, and that's something that I wish Marvel would do a better job of. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's fair, and that's fair. Marvel also had three 
number one issues, Frankenstein, Crypto, right. crypto Shadows, and War is mm -hmm. Hell. None of them are great, but Marvel did a big push, as all the publishers are doing, of publishing more scary yes. books. Yes, that your your horror, yeah, your horror heroes trend, if you want to call it that, yeah. it's it's definitely or just horror in general, it's definitely an ascendancy. I mean, this is a period when um, everybody was pretty sure that the that the the last superheroes phase was petering out. You know, the Silver Age superheroes, you know, trend, and they really didn't um, know what to do with the Bronze Age yet. And the right, right. Code, What's next? Yeah, and the Comico had just loosened yes. the reins a few years right. before. Yeah, so that made it. Yep. Yeah, it made it easy to do all these things. He had, you know, Tomb of Dracula here, you know. Yes. You know, this uh, Frankenstein, which I forget how many issues it um, was out. Now, well, they have, I think it was nine. I don't know. I mean, I can't remember. But War is Hell and Frankenstein mm -hmm. and Crypt of Shadows, they, they have all the War is Hell and all the Frankenstein archives at Marvel Unlimited, which is their, again, their unlimited service. But they don't have much of Crypto Shadows, which is unfortunate because that very first issue has mm -hmm. art by Russ Heath and Basil Woolerton, who are both very big uh, artists that mm -hmm. did stuff. And it'd be nice, even though Crypto Shadows is a reprint book, I think right. from a historical standpoint, they should reprint these reprints just to let them be there. Because again, I keep wondering, how much does it cost to archive a comic book? Mm. How much does it, you know, you did War as Hell, which nobody cares about, which I'm, <laughs> I hate to say that, but, you know, and they, they did yeah, that. I, I, and I didn't buy War as Hell, but I, I, that doesn't mean that it wasn't good. No, it means, and, that I, means that I didn't buy it when it came out because I didn't buy everything. You know, back real quickly, back on the DC Infinite Survey, people are like, oh, this month they're doing Secret Society of Supervillains number one. And I kind of like, did, you know, raise my hand and go, you know, this has actually been digitized and in an archive format for 10 years now because mm. I bought mm. them both times. Right. And nobody cares about the title, really, let's be honest. Nobody cares about something that came out in the 1977. So why doesn't DC just take that whole, instead of one issue, why don't you just dump the whole 15 issue on the service and be done with it? Mm. You got it there. Just do it, folks. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ranting and I try not to rant too much. <laughs> but these are things that are available you. that should be on the service, that should be there because they have historical legacy important. More Stan Goldberg, you know, mm -hmm. Marjette Keller, Stan Goldberg, was also a colorist, not just to uh, artist, but he did the right. color schemes for the Fantastic Four and the Amazing Spider-Man back in the Silver Age. And I think the last thing that I wanted to talk about was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Ball. Oh, okay. And I didn't realize this. And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a treasury comic book. And... Mm -hmm. People like now go, huh? What? What's but a treasury? The, what's a treasury? <laughs> but starting with this this 80 page, think about it. It was an 80 page, 11 by 14 yeah. format. Yeah. And they made this 11 by 14 so it would stand out on the newsstands. Mm -hmm. And it was 80 pages for a buck. You know, for a comic book yeah. fan back then, I'm like, oh. And I remember the treasury. Well, 80, 80 huge pages. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. 
And this started the treasury run, which lasted for about 10 years. Right. You know, the the big DC Marvel crossover of Spider-Man Superman mm-hmm. was a treasury edition. Yeah. Star Wars started off as a treasury edition. Um, what was those? You know, and there was a lot of reprints, but I remember buying mm-hmm. uh Superman versus Wonder Woman. Yeah, and it was a big thing. That was a treasury edition of new material. Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Which That's is a another big, great one. Yeah. yeah. Was a big thing. Was also mm-hmm. treasury. They had a legion of superheroes where Saturn Girl and Lightning Lad got married in a treasury edition. Right. And it all began with, with this, Rudolph. With the Red Hills Reindeer. <laughs> oh, Sorry, I stepped on your line. No, it, it, and it's funny because. I looked at this, I'm going, I thought this is the first one. And it was, and people go, well, who the heck cares about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Well, yeah, you're right, nobody cares about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But from Rudolph came all these great sure. things. And later on, you had the second wave of Marvel and DC where Superman and Spider-Man teamed up the second time around. Right, right. You had the X-Men and the Titans which again led back into the late 90s, early 2000s when George Perez mm-hmm. got to draw at last the ultimate team of the Avengers and Justice League right. thing. This I all- think it's still the last one that we've seen. Yes. Unfortunately. And, so. and it, you know, in a, in, in a comical way, all that can be traced back to <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Who this knew? first treasury, which is funny. <laughs> So again, you know, before we wrap this up, just the wonkiness of October 1972, it, it, you know, fans may not have been born. I wasn't reading comic books back then, but I can appreciate the wonkiness and their history of mm-hmm. things that even in 72 mattered. It's, sure. It rippled through, you know, into today's, well, not quite today's comic book. I'm sure I could. No, it does ripple into today's comic book. Yeah, yeah. Because we have Thanos's. And Drax the Destroyer. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just, yeah, we're I mean, just introduced of, in this. You can't but, imagine the Marvel Cinematic Universe without, without Thanos. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, Iron Man 55 is like ground zero for all that stuff. You know, and, and, <clears> and that's why fans should go back and, well, this is a Bronze Age comic and I'm not sure I like it, but read it for historical or context or mm-hmm. just throw your brain out and have a lobotomy <laughs> and read some of these things and read what happened in 72 there's so much great stuff out there go back to a silver age yeah. or a golden age it's there's fun some, there's some <laughs> and just disconnect your brain and just go i'm reading this comic book as a comic book that came out during this time and i guarantee you and you would agree on that you will enjoy these comic books there's some great sure. stuff back then and i will say that there are comics that you don't even have to turn off your brain for there are comics that actually no. will will, will yes. hold up without you having to like say okay this is i have to think about you know prevailing styles or mores or whatever else there's stuff that basically i mean it's relatively rare but there is stuff that you could just like throw into a a comic book that's coming out next week and you know it might this is a little wordy maybe but other than that i mean it's it 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 would hold it would hold up and but again the fact that you do have to provide some some context and everything doesn't i mean doesn't make those those books Less while. You know, we have now covered 1972 all the way from January through October. And I hope fans mm-hmm. will go back and check out the previous episodes of Eat Venom and they'll actually 
I will link those episodes in the show notes because, and we could do this basically any year, Alan. There's so much crazy stuff <laughs> that happened in 90, 1972, and we could randomly pick any year from almost any. Probably so. Probably and come so. up with some really cool, wonky, crazy stuff. Yeah. And fans are missing out by not taking the time and checking out some of these stuff. Alan, it's a rich history. Before we wrap this October 1972, and I once again, I apologize for hijacking most of this episode from you. Yeah, don't worry about uh, it. Do you have any closing comments? Um, just I'm going to circle back around very briefly to, to, to Frankenstein, uh, the first issue of Frankenstein, because that actually, um, that's the first uh, chapter of what I think was a four issue adaptation of Mary Shelley's novel. And it's probably, if it's not the best comics adaptation of Shelley's original Frankenstein novel, it is definitely up there. It's, um, it was written by Gary Friedrich and uh, drawn by Mike Plug, and it's, a, and it's a real labor of love. I think some of the best, best work that either one of them ever did. So that is, um, and I, I don't know if you said that that was on um, on the yes, Marvel it, Unlimited. It okay, know, okay. Marvel, Marvel had a history back then of actually, and some of our archive, the Marvel Unlimited, of actually taking historical classical mm -hmm. fiction and adapting right. it into comic books. One more thing we need to bring up because you brought this ah. up before, after I'm taping you, and I have no idea when this is going to run. Oh, quarter, right, right, right. I'm taping somebody else, and we're <laughs> talking about a tiny Marvel comic because a lot of times I'll ask my guests, what do you want to talk about? And they chose to talk about Venus, which is a 1949 comic book right? Um, at, you know, from Tommy and Marvel, but also in October 1972 was Submariner 57. Yes. And right. what's important about that, Alan? Um, Submariner 57 brings the character Venus, who at that time was still you know, in continuity was the goddess of love, you know, the Roman goddess of love. Um, and I'm, you'll be hearing all about her and her backstory, I'm sure from your from your other guest, but um, brought her into the Marvel universe proper that we think of as beginning with Fantastic Four number one. Well, which would uh, probably the be like, time. yeah, the Marvel, the one that we know. So this right. would actually be the Bronze Age appearance of, of, of <laughs> Venus. Venus. But, um, and it's, it's written and drawn by Bill Everett, um, who was, of course, the creator of Submariner back in the 40s. Um, this is a this is like his last run on the book. Yes, he which wrote I think lasted about a about himself. a year, and it was like yeah. one of the last things he did before he for his untimely passing. And, so and, it's and, just great. Yeah, I, he's one of the the artists, and I give Stanley credit that he just again Bill Everett created the Submariner, and Bill Everett did work throughout Marvel's entire history up through the 70s and they they tried to always find work for bill everett yes and people think of jack kirby but they forget about bill everett and his yeah. contributions to the marvel yeah. mythos you know as a whole and we're yeah. supposed to be wrapping this up alan <laughs> we could go on to these right i know you gotta, you gotta keep going. To take them. <laughs> alan i want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast we are going to do this again Yes. Thanks so much for joining me. And next time around, we should be talking probably November of yeah, 1972. Yeah. Again, yeah, Alan, forward thanks, to it. thanks for joining me. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you stick around for future episodes. If you like this podcast, please spread the word. Recommend it to comic fans. With this episode, I've added a link tree to the show notes, allowing you easy access to the comic fan podcast, platforms, and social media accounts. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I want the podcast to grow and introduce fans to a different way of covering comic books. Again, thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.